Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. We've been in a series. This is the last message in this series. Uh, we've, uh, we've entitled it Unshackled. And we've been talking about living in the freedom that Christ bought for us. And we've been walking through the, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to churches in Galatia. Galatia was a, um, in ancient Rome, was a, a province. that The area we would know today is uh, Turkey. Uh, part of Turkey. And we've been looking at Jesus' heart for his people revealed through the writings uh, of Paul that Jesus wanted his people not only to be free from the eternal penalty of sin, but from the power of sin now that was being displayed by people trying to live out the law. And it wasn't working and so we, we, we've been looking at that and we've been celebrating and we've used kind of as our, our theme verse, our anchor verse is uh, Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 and uh, we've been talking about it. it was for freedom that Christ set us free. This is why Jesus did what he did, was to, was to set us free. It was for that freedom. And, and we really have been over the past three weeks just really celebrating the freedom that Jesus has bought for us, trying to press into that. Uh, because of his death, his burial, his resurrection, that we can not only be forgiven eternally of sin uh, and inherit you know, eternal life, but that eternal way of living can begin in, in the here and now. And that's specifically what I want us to think about some today, is the last half of that Galatians 5.1, it, it says this, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, because of that, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, Paul in the first five, what we know as the first five chapters of this book, this letter, he, he spends the first five chapters really rocking out what it means to have been set free, what freedom in Christ looks like. In chapter 6, this closing chapter, he's bringing the letter to a close, Paul then demonstrates what a life of freedom could look like. He kind of puts it on display. And so in Galatians chapter 6, that, that phrase in chapter 5 verse 1 that says stand firm, he's going to show us what a life that's standing firm in that freedom, not going back into slavery, could look like. So I want us to just kind of read through that quickly. Um, Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 2, Paul writes, share each other's burdens and in this way you obey the law of Christ, just sharing burdens. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. Anybody ever feel a little too important? You know? Well, you're, you're fooling yourselves when, when that happens. He goes on to say, Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done. And you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. You won't have this need of comparison. For we are each responsible for our own conduct, what we do with what God's given us. Those who, verse 6, those who are taught uh, the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. Verse 7, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God, the system of God, the, 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 the law of uh, this universe that God has put in place. You will always, always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live 
to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. If you can be a believer, but you can continue to sow into a harvest of death and decay, and that's what you're going to get back. In this life, that's what you're going to get back. But even now, if you start sowing life in the Spirit, you will, you will reap spiritual blessings, eternal kinds of living blessings in the here and now. And so we, then he goes on, we, many of us like this verse, so let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessings if we don't get discouraged and give up. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. Now again, so much of Paul is writing here in this closing paragraph, if you would, in this great letter about freedom, has to do with what it looks like, a life that is being lived free. How it really looks different from the way that the world is living. And so, so much of what Paul is showing in these closing words is, you know, how do we, how do, we do good? How do we take what God has given us and, and apply it out in the world doing, doing good to others? And we look back at Galatians chapter 5. It says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, stand firm. Keep standing firm. Don't go back. Don't, don't give ground. Don't back up. Don't go back to the way that you were living. Paul is challenging those of us who would follow Jesus to the responsibility that we now have to maintain the freedom that we've been given and to, to live it out in, in all its beauty. So don't fall back into captivity. Don't fall back into bondage. I, I, didn't, I didn't share this in the first service and maybe I should have. Um, this week, uh, I, I spent some time with a lady and in our church, uh, she came and uh, made an appointment and came up to the office. And she was sharing with me something that was going on in the life of her husband. Um, he has battled, he's battled alcoholism for much of his adult life. And he has had great seasons of victory. And, uh, and recently he's suffered a, a setback. And as she was kind of unpacking the story for me, asking me to, to pray and uh, just looking for some counsel and encouragement. She said something that uh, just kind of tore at me. She said the, the starting, the beginning of her husband's drift downward again, downward spiral, was they were at the house of some Christian friends who walk in their freedom with alcohol more than they should. She didn't use that language, but that basically is what it boils down to. And in his life, it was destructive. Now, she wasn't blaming them. Please hear me say it. She was not blaming them. She knows this is his issue. But it just, it struck a chord in me that I, I, I'm still not I haven't shaken loose completely. Um, and so, I, 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 this, was, this is not even what the message is about. Uh, so, if you, it's not a message on alcohol. Um, but I just, I feel compelled now to say this. Um, in that area of your life, because it is a trap for so many of your brothers and sisters, don't use your freedom unwisely. 
Don't, don't steward your freedom. Steward your freedom. Stand firm. So that not only you don't slip back, but you keep others from slipping back. Be careful here. Now again, you, you know this. I, I'm not one who believes that drinking alcohol is a sin. But the scripture is really clear that there are lines and limits. And it just broke my heart to hear this sister. And again, she, she kind of blew by the statement. She, she didn't dive into that statement. She wasn't blaming anybody. But man, my heart just sunk when I heard that. That he is back in recovery now. Thank God. But this downward spiral happened here. So our freedom can be lost in this life. And it can lead to great destruction in lots of ways. That's just one so be careful. Paul says, stand firm. Guard. Guard your freedom. Protect it. It's so, it's so important. And that's how I want to kind of close this series out is thinking about how, how do we live unshackled? How do we continue to live in freedom? And one of, another area that I have seen over the years, many believers grow in and then go back into to, to shackles. They, that you're set free and then you fall back into captivity and bondage. And it's over this issue of our resources, our, our time, um, our financial resources that, that God gives us. And I want to close this series talking about that today. And to do that, I want to I look at a teaching that Jesus himself gave in Matthew chapter 25. So if you want, got your Bibles out and you want to turn there at Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 24 and 25 is um, towards the end of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. And um, the, Matthew 24 is really Jesus' teaching about end times. How, what it's going to look like. How, how, to, how to think about that. How to prepare as a follower of Jesus. How do we think about end times? And then verse chapter 25 is kind of a continuation of that. But it's more of because this is going to happen. Because there is going to be this great return and this great destruction before the total redemption of all creation occurs. How do you live in this in-between time? And that's what chapter 25 really ends up being so much about is, is how do followers of Jesus, how do we take what God has given us in this in-between time and be ready in strong ways, free ways, for his return? And this is kind of the big idea in, in Matthew 24 and 25. And so I want us to think very specifically today about the application of one of the parables that Jesus gives us to point to uh, how do we live? In this in-between time. As how do we live waiting? Um, and the, the parable we're going to look at is most often referred to as the parable of the talents. Now, you know, we use the word talent to talk about, you know, like the talent of singing that Terry Watkins doesn't have. And, you know, just the, the, the different talents, you know, that, that some people have, some people don't. And, um, it, but it, here it's, it's, a, it's a measurement of money. 
Um, some translations even translate it like instead of a talent, it'll, it'll say a bag of gold or something like that. So think of it in, in those terms. But basically a talent, uh, the way that those historians and mathematicians work it out is one talent basically equals uh, 20 years of income that a laborer, a day laborer in that day would make. So it's like 20 years of their salary combined is one talent. So for, you know, somebody like that, it's a, a lot of money. It, you know, kind of can translate over today. So I want us to think about this in, in today's terms. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in verse 14, Jesus starts the parable this way. He said, for it will be like, what he, when he says it, he's talking about the kingdom of God. If you went back to the beginning of chapter 24, you see Jesus talking about the kingdom of God. And he says, it'll be like, this is what, this is what life in the kingdom will be like for those who follow him now in this waiting period. He says, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Now, this wasn't an, an unusual scenario. You know, wealthy people who landowners would sometimes have to leave for long periods of time um, in order to go take care of business elsewhere. And, uh, you know, in that day, things like um, knowing when they would return, you wouldn't know exactly. You couldn't like buy a, a ticket with a date on it, even though you can't always count on that, you know, a, a plane ticket. But th they wouldn't always know because travel was not dependable. And long-distance communication was really, really not very possible. And so servants of a master, you know, didn't know when the master would come back. They, they wouldn't know the exact time, when to, when to expect them. Um, so they had to always be ready. Now, I hope that storyline sounds familiar to some of you. I hope you're thinking... I kind of know what Jesus is talking about here a little bit. I see the comparison that he's making. So the, the parable goes on. So he gathers the servants before he takes this trip. Verse 25. To one he gave five talents. Think bag of, bags of gold if you would. To another he gives two. Um, and then to another one. Each one according to their abilities. And then the master goes, he goes away. So he distributes his wealth. And again, think in terms, modern language, maybe we want to think in terms of this, like one bag of gold is worth about a half million dollars and, you know, two bags would be a million and five would be about two and a half million. So it's a significant sum of money that he's distributing. I want you to be captured by that. It, it, it's significant. We're talking about a lot of money. Now, as we read this, one of the things that kind of uh, distracts us in our culture is this idea of unfairness. We, we read this, this parable, some of us, and we look and say, well, that's not fair. Why did he give one guy five and one guy one? Where, where's, where's the fairness in that? You know, you know d d doesn't the Bible teach that all men are created equal? Well, that's the Bill of Rights, just so you know. That, you know, um, the Bible does teach that every man, woman, and child is created in his image and is to God of unlimited value. So that's kind of the Bill of Rights got it from God's word, just so you know. But the, it, it does, there's this idea here, and we don't, we don't like it. It seems unfair. But one of the things that this parable really drives home and tries to teach, it's not going to come up on the slide, you can write it down if you want to, but it's an underlying principle anywhere the Bible speaks about finances or resources and it's simply this, it's not how much you have, it's what you do with what you have. It's, in God's word, it's never about what you have, it's about what do you do with what you have. The emphasis is not on how much 
The emphasis is on what am I doing with what I have. That that's really what matters. So now in verse 19, uh, Jesus' story tells us this. Now after a long time, so we're going to see the master has been gone a long time. After a long time, the master of those servants came. He comes back and he settled accounts with them. You know, these things that had been entrusted, this large sum of money. The master's gone a long time and now he's come back and he's, he's settling up accounts. Now, here's what I want you to imagine. You know, uh, again, imagine the servants, because this guy had been gone a long time. That's what Jesus said, a long time. They may have started thinking, you know, maybe he's not coming back. Maybe he's not coming back. You know, and they may have, you know, as the days turned into years, you know, he, maybe he's not coming back. And if he's not coming back, you know, probably, okay, if I do something else with this money, you know, maybe do something else with it. But here's, here's what Jesus is wanting us to see. Just because something hasn't happened yet, it doesn't mean it won't happen. Doesn't mean it, it, it won't happen. And we logically, we, we understand this. You know, just because he hasn't returned yet doesn't mean he won't. And so this long time, this season passes, but eventually the master returns. Now, if you're one of those servants and you hear, master's back, he's home, how do you feel? How, how do you feel about that? You know, maybe like every day you had been waiting and wondering, is it going to be today? When's it going to happen? It's been a long time, you know. I thought he'd be back by now. You know, just th that kind of thing. But now he's come. How do, you, how do you feel about it as, as a servant? Well, I think there's one of two emotions you're going to feel. You are either going to be extremely excited or you're going to be terrified. I don't think there's going to be a lot of middle ground. I think it's going to be one, one or the other. And what's going to make the difference, what it's going to depend on was this. Were you ready for him to show up today? Were, were, you, were you ready? Verse 20. It says, and he who had received five talents came forward. I can see this guy, the guy that had been given five talents. It says he came forward. Okay? I, I get the idea that he just, he heard the master was back. He took off for the master. He just, he said, master's home. Dude, I want to see him. He just, he comes forward. And it says he brings five talents more. So he, he, he was given five bags of gold and now he's coming back and he's got ten bags of gold. And he says, Master, you delivered to me these five talents and I have made five talents more. Here, ten bags of gold, Master. Here's, here's what I'm bringing to you. Verse 21, his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Now, if the master's calling two and a half million dollars a little, I don't know what a lot's going to be, but it's going to be a lot. Okay? It's going to be so much more. He says, I will set you over much. And then he says this, Enter into the joy of your master. Think about that for a minute. And then verse 22, it says, And he also, who had the two talents, came forward. Kind of same mentality. Man, the master's back. Let me go see him. Master, you delivered to me two talents. Two bags of gold. I've, I've made two more. Here. It's yours. And his master said to him, notice the language. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Here's what I want us to be caught by right here for just a moment. Both of these servants 
are receiving the very same reward. They're receiving exactly the same thing now. They did start out with the same thing, but now they're receiving exactly the same thing. The guy with five, you know, got ten, comes. The guy that's got four comes, and they're both told the very same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been responsible with a little. I'm going to put you responsible with many more. Come and share in my joy. Now, here's what I want you to be captured by about that coming and sharing. He's talking about life with me. Come and share the kind of life I live. You're, you're, he's saying, you're not a servant anymore. You, you are now, you're, you're with me. You're, you're in, my, in my world. We're, we're, we're going to sh- share in this together. It's going to be our happiness, our joy. Come and share in this now. The relationship is totally changed. And so the one came with ten, the one comes with four. Their reward is the same. Why? Why is is their reward the same? Because they had both been faithful. Not because of how much they had, but because of what they did with what they had. Verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward. Now, it doesn't say this, but I don't think he was as excited. You know, he came forward, I I would say it, you know, maybe begrudgingly, maybe because the other two guys he heard, they went. He thinks, okay, I got to go get this over with. So, So he goes, Master, I knew you to be a hard, notice how much different they are. I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. What is this guy doing here? I mean, what's he doing? He, he's, he's trying to manage this. He's trying to control this. He, he, he knows this is not going to be good news. You know, this is not going to be an exciting time. He starts making excuses. He just starts trying to make excuses, you know. In, instead of presenting the master, you know, with what he, what he was going to bring, he actually starts blaming the master. He, he starts blaming. He makes excuses and he starts blaming. He says, you know, if, if you didn't have such unrealistic expectations, you know, if, if you had been fair to start with, I wouldn't have felt so devalued in front of my peers and things would have gone so much better. You know, I, I, I just, if you'd have been clearer on your instructions, he just starts making up all these excuses. I mean, that's, that's how he starts this conversation. And one of the things that I have noticed about us, I include myself in this, when it comes to managing our resources, when we suddenly have that convicting moment where we realize we have not been doing what we should have been doing with those, that which we've been given, we start making excuses. We start blaming our spouse, our circumstances, the conditions, whatever. You know, we, we, we just move into this. We, we just dive right into what this guy does. Complaining about our circumstances, feeling sorry for ourselves, blaming others. You know, it's, it's not unusual. It's just, it's kind of humanity. And so, what does this guy do? 
You know, verse 25 tells us that the next statement he made, so I was afraid of you. Because of all of this that has gone before, I was afraid of you. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, take what's yours. So he gives him back exactly what he had given him. Now that doesn't seem bad. You know, it doesn't seem horribly wicked. It doesn't, you know, he didn't waste the money. He didn't, he didn't gamble it. He didn't, he didn't embezzle it on himself. He didn't lose it, you know. He, he brings it, it might have been a little dirty because he just went and dug it out of the ground. You know, there's probably some dirt on it or something like that. But it, it doesn't seem all that bad. And yet, surprisingly, we're going to see in this story that Jesus tells the master is absolutely furious. Look at verse 26. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful, some translations use lazy, you wicked, slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested the money with bankers and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him. Give it to him who has ten. For to everyone who has, still more will be given. What he's saying is, whoever has been responsible will be given more responsibility. Whoever made the most of the opportunities that I've given them will be given even more opportunity. Verse 29. For to everyone who has, will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Anybody else want to do that? When you read that, just go, oh my word. What? Weeping and gnashing of teeth? You know, gnashing of teeth is kind of... Uh, a, a bodily experience from a deep regret. You know, have you ever had one of those moments where you think back, you missed an opportunity and just go, ugh. Well, you, normally when you do, ugh, you put your teeth together and they grind. They kind of slip down, you know, kind of thing. There's this, this kind of grinding of teeth thing that goes on. And it's, it's normally a physical, a deep physical response to, you know, regret. And Jesus says, that's what it's going to be like. That's what that moment is going to be like for those who aren't prepared at, at the master's return. Those who didn't do what they needed to do to be, to be ready. That's going to be kind of a response. Now, there are a couple of, of things that I want to kind of underline about this parable that I, that I hope you'll take away today. Uh, as we think about kind of aligning the resources that God has given us with this, this idea that Paul is saying, live in freedom, do good, take those resources. And the first one's this, God has generously entrusted you with his resources, so be grateful. God has generously entrusted you with his resources, so be grateful. If you go back and you look at verse 14, the Bible says that the master entrusted his wealth. It, it, was, it was his stuff. It, was, it, was, it wasn't theirs. It, it was his. And this is so important if you're going to understand Jesus' teaching about resources that you and I have. It's so important to understand this word because it demonstrates ownership. 
It tells us who the wealth belongs to. It was the wealth of the master. It wasn't the wealth of, of the servant. Ownership here is, is critical to understand that the, the master entrusts his wealth. And this, this, is, this issue of ownership, I think, is what really changes how we think about what the Bible teaches about money. I think this is kind of the tipping point, if you would. Because when the Bible talks about money, or let me say it this way. If you show up to a setting like this and the person standing up here is talking about money, some of you are excited about it. Some of you are happy that somebody's saying something about this. And you're glad and some of you smile at times during this message and some of you are nodding because you know the reality of this. You've experienced the beauty and the blessing of walking in that kind of freedom. You, you, you love it. And some of you are saying nobody on the planet exists like that. Some of you are the exact opposite, you know. So, some of you, you know, the, the people who are, who are smiling, who get it, who are excited uh, about hearing this message because they want to figure out even more how they can align the resources that God has given them to bring him glory, to, to, to serve his goodness and, and his pleasure because they understand what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 24:1 that the earth is the Lord. And everything in it. You, you get that. It, that it all belongs to God. And he's allowed us to use some of his stuff for a brief while while we're here. Before he returns and sets everything right. And if that's your understanding of money. Then you're one of those people who smile and nod. And you're thinking, yeah, I love that about God. That he lets me, you know, he blesses me. And I'm so grateful that he's chosen me to entrust some of his wealth with. But if you don't buy into that God ownership stuff, if that's not where you're at, if you're, then you're probably like, it's my money, my cars, yeah, it's my house, you know, it's, it's my 401k, it's, it, it's, it's mine, God keep your hands out of my pockets. That's kind of, that's, if, if you don't have this ownership thing down, that's, that's going to be kind of how you... You know, so you don't appreciate a message on this. You're, you're not very happy about it. And so this ownership issue is really a tipping point. Uh, understanding that God owns it all. That it all belongs to God. Which is why people who believe that don't spend a lot of time doing the comparison thing to other people. Because they look and say, God's entrusted me with so much. Even if it's little comparatively. You, because you say it's all God's and that he would entrust anything to us makes us grateful. We, because we understand it's his. And, and the Bible says, when, when the Bible talks about this idea of those who get that, this idea of gratitude is always associated with it. We're always grateful that God entrusts anything to us. And the Bible also attaches generosity to gratefulness. It says that the way you can measure whether you're a grateful, thankful person is how generous are you. That's the, that's the measuring stick for true thankfulness through, you know, is, are you being generous? If there's gratitude, you, you will be generous. You know, and the truth is, if someone, if someone has an entitled mentality, if someone is greedy, you're not going to find them being generous because, you know, they're, they're going to want to hoard it in. 
But gratefulness leads to generosity. It's, it's how that works. And so understanding that it all belongs to God, our automatic response is gratitude. And then out of that gratitude that we have, that God entrusts us with anything, generosity flows out of that. That's why when you read God's word, over and over again you will see this occurrence. That the refusal to be generous is stealing. Yeah, that's what I said. The Bible clearly teaches throughout the whole of, the, of God's word, whole counsel of God, that refusing to be generous is stealing. And we read that and say, so when I'm not generous, I'm stealing that? No, can't be. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before here's kind of a rhythm around here at the Christmas season usually right after Thanksgiving there are people in our church who are generous who, who, who will give extra money and say if there's a family struggling this Christmas we want to make Christmas happen so here's some money help somebody and usually that's all taken care of before the, you know, the week before Christmas. That money's been distributed and that kind of stuff. But two Christmases ago, I was coming in the office that week of before Christmas. And uh, I got a phone call about a family that was struggling. We just found out about and uh, needed some help uh, for Christmas. And, uh, you know, I'm praying and thinking as I'm driving in, you know, how can we do this? And when I got to my office, I, I normally reach into my inbox and grab it and start walking in. And I grabbed it. There were a couple of things, pieces of mail, and one of them was an envelope with my name on them, name on it, and uh, so I opened it, and uh, inside was um, a, a letter with $250, and there were instructions in the letter, and it basically said, give this to somebody who needs help this Christmas. And now, I wish I could say that always happens, you know, that you get this phone call and $250 shows up in your inbox. It does not always happen. Didn't happen last Christmas. It did the Christmas before. So anyway, you know, I've, I got this $250 and I'll, I need to go ahead and tell you this up front. I did get that money to those people. Okay? But, let's say I had done something different. Let's say that what I decided was, let's say I, I decided I needed a drone. I need, I need a drone. You know, we could do cool stuff around the church for the kingdom of God if Joe had a drone. I, I don't want a drone, by the way, just so you know. But let's say. So I took the $250 and I went to Best Buy and I got a drone, man. Somehow the story gets out and it's on the six o'clock news. Pastor takes money intended for the poor, buys himself a drone. Now, what would you think I had done with that money? Would I have been A, would I have just failed to be generous? Can we bring that up? I want to see. Would it, would it just been a failure to be generous? Or would the answer be B, Stealing. How many of you would say, you stole that, Joe? I think everybody would. It would be stealing. That was not my money. I had been entrusted that money for another purpose. I was called to be generous with somebody else's stuff to bless somebody else, to do good. 
you understand why the Bible can say failing to be generous is stealing if it all belongs to God? See, it, it's, it's an ownership thing. It's an ownership issue. That's why the Bible says some things you read it, sometimes you think, I just don't get it. Well, usually there's something deeper going on there that we need to unpack. You know, we, we, need, we need to address this. And when it comes to our resources, we've got to understand it's an ownership thing and I have been entrusted. And so ownership changes how we approach this issue. It, it'll make us grateful. It'll, it'll move us to generosity. There's a guy by the name of Richard Foster. If Richard writes it, read it. That's just how I think about Richard. Um, Richard does some great writing on like spiritual disciplines. He, he writes a great deal about um, the spiritual life, what life in the kingdom living now can look like. And he's, he's writing on this idea of, um, of generosity and giving. And he says this, God's ownership of everything, that's that biblical understanding we've been talking about. God's ownership of everything changes the kind of question we ask in giving. Rather than how much of my money should I give to God, we learn, and it's important to understand, you've got to learn this. This does not come natural to us. We learn to ask how much of God's money should I keep for myself. The, the question changes when the ownership issue is settled in our minds. I quit asking, you know, how much of my money do I give to God? And I start asking, how much of God's money do I keep for myself? It's, it's a game changer. And we need to press into that because it changes everything. A second truth that comes out of this parable that I want to underline and highlight for just a moment is this. Is that God will hold us, you and me, accountable for the resources that he gives to us. So we need to be intentional. We need to be intentional. You know, the master talks to this guy, the, the one bag of gold guy, and, you know, he said... Did you see what he called him? He called him wicked and lazy. That's what it, that was, those were his words. He paralleled wicked with lazy. Now, I'm, I just don't normally, when I think about being lazy, think that it's wicked. You know, lazy is like, I go sit on the couch, you know, and the TV's on. And the remote's not where it's supposed to be, like right there on my left hand, you know, it's not there, it's over yonder. But I don't like what's on, but I'm not going to get up and go get the remote. That's lazy. A lady came up to me after the first message and said, Wicket would have been calling Kathy and say, honey, bring me the remote. And she was right, that would have been wicked. It would have been stupid at my house too, just so you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, lazy is laying in the bathtub till your fingers get wrinkled. That, that's lazy. I don't think about that being wicked, you know. Just lazy. But here it's put together here. You're, you're wicked and you're lazy. He, he puts these things together. T ties these things together. Now, I get that if the guy had embezzled the money. I, I get that had he done something. One commentator that I read on this passage had done some research about, about the history of how the church handled this passage of scripture. And in the first century, there was a guy who tried to rewrite this parable because he could not, he couldn't connect the dots in his head. And so he tried to rewrite this parable and instead of saying that the guy buried the gold, this is what he said. He squandered the wealth on harlots and flute players. I mean, if you're going to make something up and add to the script, harlots and flute players, you know, is, 
beware of flute playing harlots in the first century. So I, I, I don't, it was, that was just weird, you know? But that's what some guy, he tried, because he could not, it, it seemed incongruent that the master would have this kind of response to somebody who just buried it in the ground. And so we read this and we want to change Jesus' story, but it's Jesus' story for a reason. Because Jesus needs us to understand that why this guy was called wicked and lazy, why laziness is associated with wickedness in this instance, is because the guy did nothing. He did nothing with the beauty and the goodness and the wonder that God had given to him. He didn't do anything with it. That's why in the eyes of the master he was with, he entrusted this guy with greatness and he didn't do a thing with it. And Jesus wants us to understand that when his return, when he returns, there's going to be a question about what you do with what I gave you? How did you invest it in others and in, in, in my purposes? How did, what did you do with that? And you see, you know, this guy's answer was, you know, I, I was afraid. I was afraid to invest it because it might go bad. You know, I was afraid to do anything with it because I, you know, I was afraid of you. And some of us, we have these great intentions or we, sometimes we have these great ideas, but we never do anything with them for the kingdom. And we're going to have to give an account. So, for, for the sake of the kingdom and for the sake of this earth and people that you love and for your own sake, be intentional. I want to give you four intentional words real quickly. Four intentional words. First, be intentionally content. Just intentionally set out to be content. Many of us love this verse from Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who does what? Gives me strength. Strengthens me. We love that verse. Look, look at the context of this verse. Paul says, I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or an empty, with plenty or little, for I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. See, strength here, this being spoken of a scripture, is the strength to be content. You got to be intentional about that. Proverbs 14.30 says this, it's healthy to be content, but envy can eat you up. It can erode your soul. Hebrews 13.5 says, be content with what you have. You're saying, how do I be with what you have? Be content. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, true godliness with contentment is great wealth in itself. It's that alone, just godliness contentment. He says, so arrange your life, be intentional about contentment. Secondly, he says, intentionally plan. The scripture teaches this throughout. Intentionally plan. Proverbs 21 says, plan carefully and you will have plenty. If you act too quickly, you'll never have enough. Plan. Save. The scripture teaches this. Proverbs 21 20 says this. This is today's English version translation. It says, stupid, spe <laughs> stupid people and people that are tongue-tied spend their money as fast as they get it. The Living Bible says this way. The wise man saves for the future. But the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Proverbs 13, 11 says, Money that comes easily disappears quickly. Do you ever have problem with the disappearing money issue? It just disappears quickly? Third intentional word I want to give you is intentionally track. 
intentionally track. Proverbs 27 says this, riches can disappear fast. We've already talked about that. So watch. Watch your business interactions closely. Watch your business interests closely. Know the state of your flock and your herds. Know what's going on with the resources that God has given you. Proverbs 22, uh, 23 says this, get the facts at any price and hold tightly to the good sense you can get. Hold, know these things. So intentionally track. Uh, last intentional word I want to give you today is an intentionally trust. Intentionally trust. Again, a passage that many of us are familiar with. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Or make them straight, some translations say. But the context of that, if you keep reading, uh, verse 7 says this. Don't be wise in your own eyes. And verse 9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And then your barns will be filled with, with plenty. Your barns will get filled this way. Honoring God with your first fruits. So this idea of, of trusting God is, is related to our resources. Luke 16, Jesus says this. He says, if you are untrustworthy with worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? Who would do that? Who would do such a silly thing? And see, intentionally trust, intentional trust is in the scriptures begins with the tithe. Anytime you're talking about resources, intentionally trusting God always begins with the tithe. Malachi chapter 3 verse 10 says this, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough in my temple. And God goes on to say, if you do, I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour out blessings. You won't be able to hold it. Some of you know that... Um, I drive a 1990 Camry. I talk about it a lot. And, you know, I've asked God for 300,000 miles and I just crossed the 280,000 barrier. And uh, I was on the phone with Terry Watkins, the guy who can't sing. Um, earlier this week, I'd left a lunch meeting with David Blade and I was gotten on, uh, got on 526, had just gotten off on the I-26 heading, heading westbound. And I was talking to Terry and it felt like my car just started floating. Didn't know what was up and I looked down and every gauge is dead and you know I, I tapped the gas and nothing. And I, I told Terry, my car's died, I gotta hang up on you. So I hung up, I get over into the emergency lane, coast down just before you get off at Remount Road and my car's dead. Try to turn it, you know, kind of thing. It's just dead and I, I realized my alternator's probably gone out and killed my battery. Seems what, you know, the, the deal was and so anyway the guy that comes uh, thank God you know this year we went and saw our son in in Germany and so we for the first time in our lives became AAA members and so we've paid you know this annual fee and so I got towing so I call AAA and say hey come get me dude and so this guy shows up and uh, he asked me the story and I tell him the story he says sounds like you're alternating I said yeah I think so and so when when he tows me to my house he, he tells me he says you're gonna think I'm crazy um, but here's what an old mechanic taught me and I got like two more years out of my alternator he said go get you some electrical spray some electric contact spray spray the alternator really good and spin it so just spray it inside really good, you know, and, and spin it. And, uh, and then put it back on and, and see what happens. So, he's charged your battery, of course. So, I, I was charging my battery, take my alternator off, do that. It cranks up. It's running great. I don't trust it, though. I think it's going to die, you know. Um, so, I, I kind of load test it and uh, turn everything electrical on. It won't die. So I, I still don't believe it. So I take it off and I take it to the store and get it bench tested. They say, your, your alternator's fine. 
And I still don't trust it. So to get up the next morning really early just to test drive it around the house because if I get down the road again, I want to die out there again. And um, it does fine. So I drive the car into work. I'm telling Gary Weiss about the, the story, you know, and telling him about the, the spray. And Gary said, no. It just doesn't. I said, I'm just telling you what happened. This is what he said, I want to test your alternator. So he, he goes and gets his gauge out of his truck. He puts it on. And I got 13.87 amps. And he told me I needed above 13.5. I got, I got 13.87. You know? Now, I don't know when you read Malachi 3 whether you're thinking that's God throwing open the windows of heaven. But for me, baby, it was. A $3 can of spray versus a $147 alternator. You know, you do the math. When you were thinking about God opening the windows of heaven and throwing in a blessing that you can't, you don't have room for it. There are places he shows up in cans of spray. I can't ex my alternator might die tomorrow. But what a great story. <laughs> I've, I've, had, I've enjoyed it so much, you know, that a little can of spray did all this. God has plans for you. Wonderful plans. He has plans to prosper you. But you got to trust him. And the tithe is a starting place for trusting God with your, with your resources. Deuteronomy 14 tells you this. It says the purpose of tithing is to teach you to always put God first in your life. It's not about the money. It's about your relationship with God. So I want to give you real quickly what I'll call, these are four questions that get asked about tithing a lot. I'm going to do these real quickly. FAQs of tithing. What should I tithe? Where should I tithe? When should I tithe? How should I tithe? What should I tithe? Proverbs 3.9 says this. Honor God with everything you own. Give him the first and the best. And this just tells me that I, I need to tithe the first part of what I earn, not the leftovers. You know, in our culture, we'd ask the question about gross or net. It says the first part. Where, where should I tithe? Malachi 3 again tells us, bring all the tithes into the storehouse so that there will be enough in my temple. In the storehouse, the temple in the day that this was written was the place that they worshipped. So it's simply this, I tithe where I worship, where I, where I worship God. When, when should I tithe? Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He says, every Lord's Day, each of you should put aside something from what you have earned during the week and use it for this offering. The amount depends on how much the Lord has helped you earn. That's that idea of a percentage. That's what the tithe is, is a tenth. It's 10%. So you tithe on the Lord's Day, where you worship. How should I tithe? Leviticus 27 tells us this. All the tithe is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. 2 Corinthians tells us, And don't give reluctantly, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. And that teaches me, those two verses, that I need to tithe unconditionally and cheerfully. When I say unconditionally, what I mean there is, without strings attached, there, there are people who will say, Well, I, I take, I take my, my tithe, and they usually start the phrase, my, I take my tithe, and I give some to this, and I give some to that, and I give some to that, and I designate this here. You're not tithing. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but you're not biblically tithing. Because the Bible says the tithe is whose? It's the Lord's. It's holy. It's different than the other. You don't get to decide. You, you just give it and trust that God's going to do what he does with it. Okay? That's, that's what biblical tithing looks like. And you're doing it with a heart that's cheerful. Now, I just want to say as a, as a pastor, as an elder, this is an area that I've watched people get freedom in and then go back into slavery on. And I've watched some, some of you live in slavery, live in, in captivity on this financial issue. And Jesus wants you to be free. He wants you to walk and, and, and live in that freedom. 
You know, I, I think about the numbers of you who have gone through financial peace and have found financial freedom, cut up your credit cards and paid them off, you know, paid off cards. The only thing that you're paying on now maybe your house. Some of you have even done that and you just, you're free. Your life is different. I think of some of you who learned to trust God more dramatically than ever back when we did our Time to Build campaign. And you live, not only did you tithe, but you gave sacrificially for three years beyond that. And some of the stories that you have told uh, about what your life is, the freedom that you have from seeing God bless, blows me away. It's just, it's incredible. Because you've come to understand that that's who God is. That's who he is. I want to close this message with a thought. How many of you are familiar with um, the atomic scientists? It's a little gang of scientists. Um, how about the doomsday clock? Any of y'all ever heard of the doomsday? Well, that's, that's the, the scientists, the atomic scientists that do the doomsday clock. Every year since the 40s, they kind of forecast on a clock how closely we are to the annihilation of humanity. Okay, that's kind of the deal. And so what, what, what they do is they, they move the clock. Well, in January is kind of when it comes out. This January, it, it moved to two till. And so, you know, papers and news media picked up on this. And some of the, uh, the headlines were doomsday clock ticks ahead. Then it goes less than two minutes to apocalypse. Another one was inching closer to total annihilation. And, you know, the, the really uplifting headlines that you can't wait to see first thing in the morning. You know, but ironically, these scientists get together and they use some very unscientific methods and metaphors to, to communicate this stuff about global catastrophe. So back this January, um, they, they moved it to 1158. And, and one, of the, one of the headlines read, it's two till midnight. And I had been reading in Matthew chapter, the latter parts of Matthew, and reading some of Jesus' teaching on the end times, when, uh, when, I, when I saw that, and it reminded me of something from one of the parables in Matthew chapter 25. Because in Matthew chapter 20, I mean, I mean in Matthew 24, Jesus compared the end time to midnight. To, to, to coming to, to midnight. That, that was what the language that he used in Matthew 24, 36. He's, he says, no one knows the, na- the, the hour. No one knows when it's going to happen. Not the angels of heaven. He says, Jesus said, I don't even know. But he, he says it's coming. And when it comes, we're going to be held responsible. We're, we're going to be held responsible. Now, here's the thing when, when we hear a message like this, and I'm going to tell you my own personal experience. Sometimes I've heard a message about money and finances, and I, I sit there and I think, yeah, that's got to change. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got I to do this. And then I walk out of the door and life starts happening, you know, and it gets pushed aside. My attention was good. My follow-through was horrible. So nothing changes. You know, n- n- nothing changes. I got, I got convicted and I, it, it, it started having ideas. But I, I want you to notice something back in the parable that we looked at today about the five talent guy that got to the ten talents. Here's what the Bible says uh, about him. Um, back in verse 16 of, uh, of chapter 25, it says, He went at once and put this master's money to work. He went at once. I mean, he, he, he heard the master entrusted him. He took what the master gave him. And what it said is he went at once and began doing something about it. 
He didn't wait. He, he didn't let the distractions of the day mess him up. He didn't let life set him off track. He went at once. And that's the challenge I want to leave you with. What do you need to do? You know, what, what has God said to you maybe today about your resources? Are you using them for his kingdom's sake? Are you grateful and is that showing up because you're generous? Are you being intentional with what God owns? Or do you need to do something? And if you do, would you do it at once? Let's pray. Father, we come now giving thanks to you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. God, the reality that you would entrust us with anything, entrust me with anything, blows me away. Thank you for that grace, your entrusting grace. And God, the truth about so many of us in this room is you have you have graced us with so much. You've entrusted so much to us. And you've given us your plan, your purposes, your good pleasure with your stuff. None of us are probably as generous as we should be. Some of us are withholding, holding on tight to what we think is ours. So God, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict us and convince us of where our lives are off kilter. God, not because you need our money, but because you died for our freedom. It was freedom that you came to set us free. And it just breaks your heart when you see us slipping back. So God, show us, show us where we need to stand firm. Show us, God. Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would, you would inspire us, that we would know that when we become th these grateful people, when we become intentional, when we're generous, God, the reality of your goodness is that it never runs out. We can't outgive you back. The, the, the well never runs dry with you. Help us understand that that's the truth about trusting you, oh God. We will get to see your kingdom come and your will done in our lives and it'll be good. So we come now, God, to worship you. We come now to worship you with whatever new decision we need to make. Whatever new commitment we need to make to, to repent of some way we've been thinking to walk into your kingdom living. And we ask for you to help us now, God. We choose to follow you. We want to experience you as our great and powerful and beautiful and lovely God who never runs dry. Help us now, we pray in Christ's name. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.